This is episode 33 of Ripe Good Scholar, Folklore Cymbeline. And they ride off into the sunset. Sorry, I tried to have you murdered. Yeah, she apparently lets that go. I'm like, I don't think I would. I think if you try to kill me, that's a deal breaker. I, You just sound spiteful. Hi, this is Jim Shapiro, author of Contested Will and Shakespeare in a Divided America. And you are listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. Today, we will be examining how the folktale, now known as Snow White, may have influenced Shakespeare as he wrote Cymbeline. This may come as a surprise since Snow White wasn't published until long after Shakespeare's death. However, it's undeniable that the two stories have a lot in common, which is what we will be examining today. For this episode, I read Charlotte Artis's book, Shakespeare and the Folktale. If you want to check out that book and so much more, head on over to ripegoodscholar.com ep33. Now, let's head to ancient Britain. Today we're going to be talking about Cymbeline and some possible folklore influences on that story. Because as we've discussed many times on the show, Shakespeare's stories don't just come out of thin air. What? He draws inspiration from a lot of different plots. While a lot of sources are obvious, kind of one-to-one adaptation, I'm thinking here like Hall and Shed in particular, there are some that are more general. And one of the more general ones is what we're going to be talking about today. Okay. Charlotte Artis compiled an amazing anthology of folktales that appear in Shakespeare. It's called Shakespeare and the Folktale. You can find a link to it in the show notes. I found her chapters on Cymbeline particularly interesting. One, it was a play I wasn't as familiar with. What? You haven't watched Cymbeline, that iconic one that we all know. Now I have. There's a good. There's a pretty good film with Ed Harris. What I found most interesting is that Artis draws some interesting connections between Cymbeline and the story of Snow White. Interesting. Because I'm very familiar with the story of Snow White, but not at all familiar with the story of Cymbeline. Well, we'll do a recap of Cymbeline, but I will also touch on a couple key story points that I think really highlight it. Now, I will note here that there are going to be some plot lines in Cymbeline that we don't see in Snow White, and that's in part because we see them in other folktales. We will just cover those in other episodes, like the Long Lost Brothers and the Testing of the Wife's Chastity and all that jazz. Those are other folktales. One thing that I was like, maybe not, though, was that Snow White wasn't first published until the 18th century. Yeah, I mean, that's the Brothers Grimm, right? Yeah, probably. They collected folk tales, so it's still probably more likely that the folk tale predated the story Shakespeare wrote. Definitely. I mean, folk tales were passed down orally long before they were written down. And in fact, um, Artis mentions not the Snow White we all 
would be most familiar with, but kind of a very similar folktale, because a lot of folktales are very similar across cultures. But since really they weren't written down till the Brothers Grimm or about then, it kind of begs the question, was Shakespeare actually the first publication of Snow White? Ooh. It can be a question we come back to. So since Cymbeline isn't as well known of a play, I'm going to do my best. To do a brief recap before we kind of go into the nitty gritty of where it ties into Snow White. That should be easy. Shakespeare's plots are known for being simple, straightforward, without any twists or convoluted nonsense. Yeah, that was sarcasm. And Cymbeline's bad even for a Shakespeare play. <laughs> Our main characters are Cymbeline, the king of the Britons. This is during kind of the Roman occupation. Ah. We have his daughter. Imogen, and his wife, who's just called the Queen. The Queen is Imogen's stepmother. Gotcha. The Queen has a son from her previous marriage. Ooh, wait, I spotted a parallel. Yes, Shh, hold on. And then finally, we have Posthumus, who is Imogen's love interest. I do not anticipate good things for Posthumus. Generally a good call, but actually, spoiler alert, he lives. Wait, what? Oh, I was man. shook. Underlying the whole play is some nonsense with paying tributes to the Romans and Cymbeline doesn't want to do it. Irrelevant to what we're talking about today. Imogen and Posthumus get secretly married. Ooh. When Cymbeline finds out, he exiles Posthumus. Aww. Who he had, like, adopted as a son. So while in exile, Posthumus meets Iacomo. Iacomo presents a bet to Posthumus, that he, Iacomo, can sleep with Imogen, that she will be unfaithful to Posthumus. Posthumus bets she won't, obviously. So Iacomo, through some trickery, makes it look like he slept with Imogen. Ooh. When Posthumus finds out, he is distraught. So he sends his servant, his right-hand man, to kill Imogen. Oh. Now, Posthumus is not the only one trying to kill Imogen. Oh. So is the queen. Ah, I'm seeing another parallel. The queen has been getting poison from this doctor that for some reason she has also given to Posthumus's servant and told him it was medicine. Again, it's Shakespeare. It's convoluted. Broad strokes here. Go read the play if you want to know all the deets. This servant shows up and he doesn't he doesn't want to kill Imogen. So instead, he takes her bloody clothes to make it look like he killed her. She disguises herself as a man because this is Shakespeare. And he gives her the medicine that he received from the queen to help her feel better. Which is not poison. We'll get there. Stay with me. The queen believes it's poison. Servant believes it's medicine. So Imogen runs off into the wilderness. And after days of being just in the mountains of Wales, she comes across a cave where a man is living with his two sons. They immediately take her in, believing she is a boy. While she's in the cave, they come across the queen's son, kill him, decapitate him, dump him. Oh, jeez. Uh, any reason for that? I think he smart talked him. I don't know. While they were out, Imogen took her medicine because she wasn't feeling well and appeared dead when they get back. So they also sadly dump her in a ditch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not as not as nice as a serene glass coffin altar. They head in to confront Cymbeline because we all have to come together at the end. Okay. Imogen wakes up. She believes that the body with her is posthumous. Oh, no. So she gets sad. And she also goes back 
to Cymbeline's castle. So we're all here at our climax. You know, Posthumus is coming in too because why not? Again, we all have to get together for the nice neat bow tie. Yay, everyone's happy. The queen finds out her son is dead and offs herself. So she's out of the picture. So Cymbeline, Imogen, Posthumus, and man with his two sons all are together. And that's when we realize, that's when Cymbeline is reunited with Imogen. And also, surprise twist, is reunited with his two long-lost sons. What? Because Caveman was a general that he unjustly exiled. And so that general, like, kidnapped his kids. Oh, and Posthumus comes back. Surprise, he's alive. And they ride off into the sunset. Sorry, I tried to have you murdered. Yeah, she apparently lets that go. I'm like, I don't think I would. I think if you try to kill me, that's a deal breaker. I, You just sound spiteful. I'm seeing some of the parallels, although the forest creatures running the queen off a cliff would have been more fun. I mean, obviously, but we can't all have our way. So we'll start with one of the most obvious parallels, which is the evil stepmother. Yeah, that one jumped out at me. What's funny to me is the queen doesn't even get a name. Yeah, I mean, that's how it is in the Disney story, too, isn't right? it? Right? Which I thought was funny. You know, as discussed in the recap, the queen is trying to poison Imogen. I'm assuming because Imogen has rejected her son, you know, who wouldn't want to marry their stepbrother. I think we should all take some time to point out that when she saw her brother's decapitated body, she was like, oh my god, that body is exactly like my lover's. I think it was more because of the clothing. Uh. Fortunately for Imogen... The doctor doesn't actually give her real poison. Obvious, clear parallel, I don't really need to go into that much, is that the evil stepmother is attempting to poison her stepdaughter. Yeah, after chasing her into the woods. That's where it differs a little. So she is chased into the woods. Before she's chased into the woods, the queen makes a hilariously ironic speech. This is after Posthumus has been exiled, but before he's actually left. And Cymbeline has said Imogen's going to be locked up in her room. So the queen says to Imogen, No, be assured, you shall not find me, daughter, after the slander of most stepmothers, evil-eyed toward you. You're my prisoner, but your jailer shall deliver you the keys that lock up your restraint. And I just find it hilarious that she's like, Hey, I know, there's this whole stereotype of the evil stepmother, but that's not me. I'm not going to be that way. And then is like, I am trying to poison you. <laughs> As we compare to Snow White, I find it so funny that you have this evil stepmother being like, that's not me. Literally referencing the stereotype. The stereotype. I also love that the stereotype already existed. Yeah, which also would lend us to believe that these stories had been around long before they were ever published. As you referenced earlier, we have Imogen slash Snow White being driven into the woods. Ver with a very similar kind of huntsman situation going on with one small change in snow white the evil queen sends the huntsman to kill snow white and he brings back like the heart of a deer or some other evidence that he killed snow white without actually killing her which allows her to flee into the woods yes which is obviously a very similar situation to Imogen, except in this case, it's Posthumus sending his servant to kill Imogen. Oh, that's true. And it's Posthumus that will receive the evidence that Imogen has been killed, even though she has not been. It's quite interesting because uh, the act of sending the huntsman to kill her is kind of the condemnation 
of the evil queen in Snow White. It's the step she takes over the edge that justifies everything that happens to her. Whereas here, you know, Posthumus, sure, he tried to kill his wife once, but give a guy a break. But this servant that Posthumus sends also has in his possession the poison from the evil queen. He believes it to be medicinal. Hmm. As for it being a condemnation of the evil queen, we as the audience already know at this point that she is trying to poison Imogen. So when he gives her the medicinal drink, we know that it's the poison the queen had. Okay. We still know she's trying to kill Imogen. She's just not the only one trying to kill Imogen. Poor Imogen. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I guess we were supposed to forgive Posthumus because he thinks she slept with Giacomo. Also, you know, Snow White had one lady after her and, like, a house full of men who were apparently perfectly happy to let her stay there. Imogen just had three dudes in a cave. Getting to the three dudes in a cave. We also have than the parallel of Snow White. And now in, in various folktale, they're not always dwarves. There's usually seven, but there's thieves or, you know, just she finds refuge with someone. That's yeah. the consistent thread through all the folktales. So she's wandering around Wales. She's exhausted. She finds a cave and falls asleep while the men are not there. Ah, yeah. Which again is another very similar Snow White parallel. Snow White arrives at the house, the cottage, wherever she is going to live and do housework. She arrives when they're not there. So they come to find this person in their house. You also have this idea of then once the men do come and find this woman or in the case of Cymbeline woman dressed as man in their home they immediately accept them I guess that's the real difference between humans and bears Goldilocks reference Now, Snow White is invited into the man realm, the house, the cave, whatever, because she's going to do the housework and, like, the cooking and the cleaning. Again, we have a difference here, uh, you know, deviation from Snow White, in that Imogen is presenting as a man. They believe her to be a man, which is funny because the one son makes a comment about how he would want to woo her were she not a man. Oh, that's that's his sister. Yeah. Yeah, it's made worse by the fact that it's his sister. Moving forward in the plot, we have Imogen taking the draft and appearing dead, falling asleep and appearing dead, which again is something similar to what happens in Snow White. In Snow White, it's the apples lodged in the throat. So, um, kind of as we talked about earlier, both poisons do come from the queen. Delivery is different. And in both... Uh, Snow White and Imogen are both unsuspecting of what they're given. Snow White's like, yummy, an apple from a creepy old lady who showed up in the middle of the woods. Well, maybe she doesn't judge by appearances. That's what made her the fairest in the land. And then she almost died. So the lesson is judged by appearances. That's right. The beast was right. I said it. (laughs) (laughs) Then, you know, we have both our heroines being discovered by her new family, her sh- the people giving her shelter, and they presume her dead and... Toss her in a ditch. <laughs> Quote-unquote, bury her. Well, neither is buried. One is, again, placed in a glass coffin on a beautiful altar with wreaths laid down by forest creatures. Given, given funerary rites. <laughs> and the other is tossed in a ditch. Okay, listen, listen, listen. 
One, they're in the mountains of Wales. There's no glass coffins around. Two. You don't know that. They're in the mountains of like. The dwarves were in a for the forests of Germany or France. And they were also miners. I mean, that just, I mean, their being miners just is really exemplary of their resourcefulness. What I'm saying is, is that these are in ancient Roman Britain, mountains of Wales. I don't think there was a bunch of glass laying around. They could have dug a hole. Yes, but then she couldn't have woken up. Could have killed build it. So what you're saying is, on an Elizabethan stage, she was going to dig her way out of a grave. I mean... That'd be impressive. It would be. It's also not going to happen. You just have the buried coffin on stage. It'll be like a David Blaine show. And she slowly one inch punches her way out of the (laughs) coffin as they're doing the rest of the acting. And they're like, what? You're alive. And she comes back. How many apprentices have died in that process? (laughs) The weak ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, being tossed in a ditch doesn't seem very reverent, but... They have things to do, and it's important for her to resurrect later, to not be buried. So now, finally, we do have the happy ending of our heroine getting her prince. Um, this is probably where the two stories differ the most significantly. Yeah, I'd say the, since the queen's role is kind of split between the queen and uh, Posthumus, you know, ma- marrying one of her attempted murderers is pretty bad. Well, yeah, but like I said, he, he thought... She had cheated on him, so I guess it was justified. <laughs> in Shakespeare, Imogen's being reunited with Posthumus is much less interesting. Like, she wakes up, goes into the thick of the Roman battle, happy ending, they ride off into the sunset, everybody forgives everybody, Cymbeline realizes how evil and manipulative the co- dead queen was, and Snow White getting her prince is much more interesting. Because <laughs> as we said, she's in this beautiful glass coffin, a prince rides along and is like, oh! What a beautiful glass coffin with a beautiful woman in it. I will take this now. And he takes it home. There are a couple different ways she wakes up in the various iterations of the folktale. One, the coffin gets dropped and it dislodges the apple and she wakes up. In in another story, it's not an apple caught in her throat. It's a needle. And the prince, like, ah, dislodges the needle from her I think it was in her hair or something. Okay. Dislodges it and she wakes up and is like, who are you? What am I doing here? And then he like sticks it back in until he can figure out what to do with her. Okay, that's great. But I thought you were saying the needle was in her throat. No, no, no. Um, now in my personal favorite folk story I read, the prince comes home with this woman in a glass coffin. And his mom is like, no, you cannot have a dead body in your room. You weirdo. <laughs> oh, no. He's one of those princes. <laughs> so he sneaks her into his room. Oh, no. And then like, he's bringing her, like, flowers and, like, putting them all around her. And then somehow the flowers are curative and she wakes up. So anyway, I think that it's pretty easy to see where the folklore influences came in. And I particularly find it interesting to think about, was this really one of the first published versions of Snow White or are we going to go back and look at Cymbeline in Hollandshed and it turns out no it wasn't it was in Hollandshed first <laughs> I mean it's Shakespeare so who knows 
But I think it's interesting to see how deep folklore goes into a country. I mean, like I said, in Cymbeline, we have like three different folk stories that we can see within one play. Yeah, it is kind of a merging of different folk stories into a single narrative. It's So I guess the conclusion is that Cymbeline is just once upon a time. <laughs> thank you for listening to ripe good scholar we hope you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com ep33 for even more information on cymbeline snow white and folktales the show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little Agadine still and contemplative in living art.